Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 87, Cinematographer Interview. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's Mike and Dave with you here once again, and it's time for an interview edition of the podcast, and this is one that was sort of taking form as the week went by between last week's podcast and this one. It kind of took shape right at the last minute, and I wasn't sure what it was going to do, but it turns out to be an interview with two cinematographers. One is Sarah Cauley for Manifest, and the other is Sam McCurdy for Lost in Space. I was intimating last week that perhaps we would have two Manifest guests, and I was trying to get an actor from that show to go along with Sarah Cauley, the DP of Manifest, but... I think this works out well, too, as a pairing. Two cinematographers. You know, Dave, I teach TV class in uh, high school, and this is a topic that interests me a lot. Well, yeah, and, and you think about how much we've learned about the actual construction of a TV show. I mean, you've got the obvious actors, showrunners, directors, and writers, but to talk to you know the people that write the music and the theme songs, and you know now with the cinematographers and special effects, uh, it's really been an education. Yeah, we've talked to a couple of different types of people behind the scenes, including composers and visual effects artists. But I believe this might be the first time we've talked to cinematographers other than on the Fourth Wall podcast. We did talk to the cinematographer for what we do in the shadows. So this was a nice continuation of that education. So for those not familiar with these two uh, cinematographers, and you could be forgiven for not knowing their names necessarily, Sam McCurdy, who is the director of photography for Lost in Space is a very enthusiastic DP, as you will find out in this first part of the interview, who has worked on some of our favorite shows like Game of Thrones, Merlin, and Into the Badlands. And he talked to us about how he created the look for the space scenes in Lost in Space, as well as the two different planetary locations in season two. And he elaborated also on how the actors were able to interact with the robots without them actually being there. So you'll you'll want to stay tuned for that conversation because that is a very enlightening how did they do that kind of conversation and, we, and we've talked to actors that have told us yeah i was actually just talking to a tennis ball on a string <laughs> yes exactly or on one of those boom poles or something yeah right but sarah Cauley talked to us about the changing world for women behind the camera and her eclectic career ranges from everything from upright citizens brigade to queer eye And she's going to share her vision for this, what she calls the naturalistic look of Manifest with New York City, you know, acting as an important character in the show, the same way, for example, Vancouver did in Continuum. And she also talks about how she films the callings, for those of you who are familiar with the callings, the prophetic visions in Manifest, and also how those many scenes on board Flight 828 were filmed. So if you want to get a little peek behind the scenes, a little bit of the magic and how things work, 
let's go ahead and listen to our interview with Sam McCurdy of Lost in Space and Sarah Colley of Manifest. We're here talking with Sam McCurdy, who is the director of photography for Lost in Space, among many other properties. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you very much, Michael. It's very, very nice to join you. Now, can you tell us about the various environments you worked in with Lost in Space? Because you've got both space and planet-side environments to deal with. So how did you treat each of those differently in terms of light and color? Because it seems like Lost in Space is more of a saturated sci-fi world than we're used to. It is. We we took a decision very early on. One of the, I guess, going backwards and coming forwards. At the end of season one, I think we all... Uh, from showrunner, studio, everybody, we'd learned a lot. So when it came to season two, we kind of knew where we wanted to take everything in a visual fashion, in a VFX fashion, in a style fashion, everything. And one of those things was was kind of demarking the environment. So making, making it feel very different for each of the planets, making it feel a little more natural and a little more homely when we were actually in space. And one of the one of the things we also knew up front was we were going to be shooting in Iceland and we knew we were going to be shooting in Alberta for the summer for our kind of warmer planet scene. So we kind of we pre-decided a, a, a palette for everything that we're going to do. So we knew that the, 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 the kind of water planet was going to be very monochromatic, very cold, very blue, lots of water. Shooting on the, the, the Black Sands Beach in, in Iceland obviously dictated a lot of that anyway. And same with Alberta. When we, we, we tried our best to shoot in Alberta in the summer, although it was very hard to find summer in Alberta. Um, as anybody there will tell you, you can pretty much guarantee that you'll get rain or snow 12 months of the year at some point in time. But um, we chose the canyons there that that had very, very, very warm tones that would allow us to really demark Iceland, demark the warm planets. And then for space itself, we kind of try, we try and play it so that it's a neutral balance between the two, the, the, you know, unless we know we're going through different atmospheres down onto planets or, as we had in the second season, traveling through um, various gas layers. We kind of treat space as that kind of straight, cold, white light, which hopefully sits everything in the middle and kind of makes you feel a little or, or, or tries to make you feel a little more comfortable when you're on the spaceships or when you're on the, the Resolute, the space station itself. So, so from a very, very early point in time, we kind of, we have already decided the, the, the color schemes for the show. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I feel like in space, you almost have to light it a certain way, especially on actors' faces when they're looking at something very different on set than what they would be looking at in the final product. So how do you account for, you know, things that are outside the space portal window or, or something like that? How do you write so. for space? It's, it's, it's kind of going back to a very, very old fashioned principle of, of if you're in space, there's pretty much only one source of light and that's going to be the sun 
be it on the front side of a planet, the back side of a planet, or the front side of the the, the spaceship, or the back side of the spaceship. So we we devised a way of ensuring we had the options to go between both. So we had a lot of big moving saucers that projected a white light, and we had a lot of reflected white light that we could do the same with. So we kind of, and, and a lot of moving sources. It was a real testament to lighting and grip this second season because we developed ways of moving light sources down the huge corridors that we had on the Resolute, which spanned across two full stages. And then the whole coordination of the movement of those lights and everything. It was, it was almost, when you stood outside the sets themselves, it was almost like one huge rock and roll rig with lots of moving sources, lots of huge rigs that allowed us to bring in sunlight, bring in cold sort of shadow light or reflected light from, from other planets or just reflected light from the space station itself. And as you say, every time somebody looked out of a window, it was our job to ensure that it felt like they were either looking into the sun or looking into a planet or, you know, looking into a very dark lunar landscape. And of course, you, as you well know, we, you know, with yards and yards and yards of green screen out there, it's, um, it's often difficult to cheat an actor into believing that they're looking into, you know, a, <laughs> yeah. a vast darkness when there's usually a huge green screen about 10 or 12 feet away from the, uh, the window itself. So, it's, it was a fine balance for us to make it work for actors so they didn't always feel like we were shooting in green boxes and that there was enough interactive lighting from spaceships outside or from the sun outside that felt like they did have things to react to, that they did have you know, at least the feeling of the, the, the sun beating down through windows or something like that and not have them have to play to a, a blank green screen all the time. And and that's outside the ship, of course, but you also have to do it inside the ship because there's quite a bit of CGI, especially in the robot attack at the end of season two. Are there any elements of that that are in camera, like like the glow of a, the face of a robot reflecting off of skin, that sort of thing? They're absolutely, again, with the, the, the guys that do the, um, the visual effects, Jabbar, who is our visual effects supervisor, who also directed an episode this season, We've worked so, so closely and very, very carefully through both seasons, but even more so on this second season. As I say, it it felt like we learned so much on the first season that when it came to the second season, we all knew exactly which way to take it. And one of those things was the VFX. We get a lot of prevised material from the guys. The guys now have a lot of assets that are pre-built, like spaceships and the robots and things like that. So we now know where all of these things should be in the real world. So, as you mentioned, the kind of huge robot fight, or certainly when the, when the robot army froze in the airlock when they first breach. To look at the set, it was quite bizarre because we had 101 C-stands, which are you know just flag stands that all had these kind of LED clusters attached to them with the, the red glow of the robot. Oh, cool. <laughs> and we then drape all those in, in green. But they have the, the faces. You know, we would mimic the faces 
of the robots on stand. And because everything we do on, on Lost in Space is all LED-based as lighting, we have total control over everything. So we can make these glow and pulse as they did in the final comps. And the actors can at least know where a face is of a robot. And, you know, they can choose to interact with that. Or as Parker Posey did as she was making her way through, she knows the areas and the angles that she has to avoid because that's where a, a robot face is. The special effects team that built the robots also have the odd spare limb and things like that lying around. So we um, we would put those on stands with the, the kind of, with the talons pointed in towards Parker so she could um, play with at least some real elements. And then the visual effects guys initially just wipe all of that away and then put the um, the fantastic visual effects in afterwards. That's very cool. It was. It was, it was very bizarre to look at. Yeah, I imagine. Um, I'm thinking in particular of a scene where John uh, Robinson is at the bottom of a mine shaft. Did you have any confined spaces or other yes. challenging settings to film with Lost in Space Season 2? So many. So many. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, and one, one of the good things, that for some bizarre reason, I think if you know anybody who reads through my resume and looks at the amount of caves or tight spaces I've had to shoot in everything from Merlin the descent through Game of Thrones into Lost in Space now. I think every job I've ever done, somebody throws a cave at me. It's <laughs> become quite bizarre. And I think because you've done it so many times, you learn your little tricks that you will do when you are thrown a confined space. Fortunately, the, the, the shaft that John was drawn down, that, that, that Toby lands at the bottom of, it was always three-sided, so we always had a space for camera. And then, you know, the, you, you kind of try and you try and do that thing where you get the camera in as close as you possibly can to just to enhance that claustrophobia a little bit. So there's a lot of little cheats we've done. Um, the trash compactor was another one that we had this season that in good old-fashioned Star Wars tradition, it did have collapsing walls that made it problematic to physically get in there, made it problematic for the actors to get in there. I think the trickiest thing we had this season was probably shooting, I think Iceland and Alberta were both, Iceland was very cold. We were up at 4 a.m. in the morning to catch that really, really, really early morning cold light before the sun fully got up and we'd shoot in the mornings and shoot in the evenings. One of the scenes that we shot by a waterfall, the sun came out and we had this huge rainbow across the waterfall. And I was like, no, 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 we can't shoot. We can't shoot. There's a rainbow in the back of shot. And everybody's like, my God, we've never, we've, we've never held a production for a rainbow before, Sam. I was like, no, but it can't be there. It shouldn't be there. <laughs> so there's humorous problematic things. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's a great, fun sci-fi show. And... Everybody that works on it have become an incredibly close family now. So it, it's all taken very good humoredly by producers and directors and execs and everybody going, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to thank you for so much for talking with us today, Sam. Uh, you're clearly a gentleman who enjoys his job. So thanks very much for talking to us. I love it. I absolutely love it. No, it's a real pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Indeed. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Michael. How are you? It's nice to meet you on the phone. So uh, for those of our readers who may or maybe aren't familiar with the distinction, can you describe what falls under the purview of the director of photography on a TV series, especially considering on television, the rotating slate of directors distinguishes television from film, and perhaps you have to give them the overall vision. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, the work starts in prep. So like many weeks before we actually start shooting the show, the the DP will select the crew, like the key creatives, the gaffer, the key grip, camera operator, and AC, and start rigging the standing sets so that there's some creative options built in. And then when prepping with the director, I think the director who shoots the first episode of the season kind of sets a tone for the season a little bit, although, of course, we're always going to align with the established style of the show. And unlike features, which is where I started out, I shot many indie features where there's just one director and we have a lot of prep time together and we communicate very closely. We evolve a vision and it's, you know, we're both completely on board with that vision and we see the project through. As you just mentioned on TV, there's a different director coming in every episode and they're coming in with fresh ideas. They want to do the best episodes that they can. And a lot of times they want to put their own signature on an episode. So there is an aspect as the DP on a TV show, you're the steward of the visual style. So in conjunction with the showrunner and the producers, having that dialogue with the director, it is a fine line where they might want to take things in a new direction. And and sometimes that's great because that's exactly why they were brought in. And sometimes there has to be a discussion like that's not how we do this or our visual language would actually suggest that maybe we would do it this way. So there's conversation about that. And and there is definitely the fact that the DP sees the sets and the crew and the cast every day. So they do have the overview. Now, is it accurate to say that if a director of photography has done her job correctly, the cinematography goes largely unnoticed by the average viewer, but I would think that your vision that you were just referring to might apply to the callings. Is that sort of the exception to the rule? Um, Yes, because parts of, you know, the show at times has a very naturalistic feeling. So that, that meshes with what you just said, but, and the callings, definitely we were like more subjective, more stylized, more, more dreamlike. So yes, that's true. But I would think you may see as the season wears on that the line between what's a calling and what's reality will become less clear. So the callings were very unto themselves and there might be 
a little bit more of an intermingled feeling coming up. Oh, very cool. <laughs> what else would you say is the distinguishing vision of this series? Like if you had to describe it to a director, what is the signature look of Manifest? For season two, we definitely dynamic. Like we really wanted to have a dynamic feeling to it. There's action sequences. There's a lot of camera movement, some specialty camera movement. So dynamic is definitely one of the main things we're trying for. And then the contrast between the big set pieces and the smaller moments of intimate drama just between the characters is something else that's really important to the show that we talked about early. New York City is a character in the show, and we get out there on the streets a lot, and there are some action set pieces, and then there'll be the contrast to the smaller, more human moments. So that contrast was also very important. Now, featuring large in Manifest Season 2 is this repeating vision of Flight 828 or an altered version of what happened on Flight 828. Were all those scenes filmed at one time to maintain continuity or how did that unfold for you? Uh, Like we said, you're the one consistent point in the filming (laughs) since the directors rotate around. That's true. And I I also alternated with a DP. I did the, the odds. So um, I, set, oh, okay. <laughs> I set up a lot of the looks for 201, and then the, I ended up alternating with John Inwood, who shot the Even episodes. So Joe Chappelle was the producing director, and he directed 201. So we had a lot of prep time. We figured out our, our airplane looks on the regular Flight 828. And there's a night interior look that's just the house lights of the airplane augmented with LED ribbon. And that looks pretty straightforward. That would be almost like what it would feel like just for anyone to be on an airplane at night. Um, In 201, we also had the lightning storm and the nosedive sequence. So I shot a lot of tests and we came up with that look that we liked. And then once I started to hand off to John Inwood for the even episodes, we kept those looks consistent. But later on, the more stylized airplane footage that's in the promos where it almost looks like wreckage. John had one look on that for an episode and I did like a different look for it on the next episode. So it was actually shot over the course of months. And some of it, both DPs handled the same way. And then when things got a little more expressionistic, we took it in a couple different directions. So there's many, I almost said manifestations of Flight A28, but there's many uh, <laughs> incarnations of Flight A28, you know, where it's it, like an altered reality. And we shot them, yeah, over the course of the whole, we shot, we shot Airplane in 201 and we shot it all the way up through, you know, there's, there, we were in there a lot and we, we couldn't really block shoot it. So did you have those cast members that are sitting in the background called in each time or how did that work? Did you just have uh, seat fillers? <laughs> I, I closed my ears during some of those conversations that the ADs had, but the characters of who <laughs> of who sat where on the airplane and who had to be there for certain moments on the airplane was its own specialty item that, that the producer and the ADs worked out. And that was its own art form. <laughs> yes, I imagine so. Now, is there a concerted effort on the part of the DP in shows like this to keep the villains, in this case, maybe the majors team, or maybe even secret government elements such as Vance's scenes in the travel agency? 
Do you keep those dimly lit to communicate that sense of clandestine operations? There was some of that, like when Ben gets abducted and taken to that room, it's scripted as a windowless room and it's a night scene. So that was fairly dark. There were, I will say, some moments where later on in the season, you might meet some characters who turn out to not have good intentions. But when we meet them, we keep it all very naturalistic so as not to telegraph that anything's coming up. Yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes we didn't want to tip our hand. Yeah, exactly. That's like the same thing with the soundtrack. You don't want to start playing eerie music uh, when we're not supposed to know if they have good intentions or not. But uh, I imagine, like many behind-the-camera positions in film and television, cinematography is a largely male-dominated profession. Have you seen more job opportunities opening up for women, and what was your particular path that brought you to manifest? I think that there are more... Yeah, I've been in the camera department for a couple decades now, and I've so I've, I have seen things over the years change a bit. I think that there's more women on the key crew than there used to be on the core crew. It doesn't seem to me that there's many more female directors than there were like even 10 years ago. I haven't seen that number grow radically, but I think that there's change and that women are being integrated in, into the crew more. And I, I will say that I think that the demeanor of crews has changed. I mean, I think that people, the younger people who are coming up now sets are run a little bit differently than they used to be. Like at the beginning of every show nowadays, we'll all have to go and get professional development training about, you know, how, how we are on the set and, you know, Warner brothers or whoever the studio is, will will make sure that everybody who's going to be on the set crew. Here's their perspective about what they do consider professional conduct. And that type of training didn't used to be, the norm, I don't think. And I, I think it just uh, kind of helps. I think I've seen a more respectful community evolve as a result of things like that. And my past to manifest. Wow. <laughs> um, when I started out shooting as a beginner, I shot a lot of indie films because that, a lot of that was happening in the ni- in the nineties in New York. And I, it was some good training that I'm still using this very day on shows like Manifest, how to shoot narrative, how to shoot it fairly quickly. And I also, at that point in my life, came into contact with some of the people who later turned out to be producers on the show. So when some resumes from agencies came in, we had that history to build on. The timing worked out really well because they called in May and I had just finished something else. So... The, the timing was great, and I was just very drawn to the content. Like, I saw an opportunity with season two to to develop the visuals further and, and, like, enhance that aspect of the show. And a lot of action and mystery and intrigue in New York is really, to me, that's a golden invitation. Oh, that's great. I really appreciate you talking to me today about Manifest, and I uh, wish you luck for the rest of season two. All right. I hope you watch it tonight. I sure will. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thanks, Michael. All right, Dave, that was really quite an education. And I like what Sam McCurdy said at the end of his portion of the interview, where I shared with him that I thought 
you know what? You're someone who really enjoys your job. And I can tell that that's the case. And I think that was true sometimes when we interviewed composers as well. There's no one more enthusiastic about talking about their profession than someone who doesn't get to talk on a podcast or in an interview about what they do to a receptive audience very often, I, I would guess. Yeah. And, and like you said, they love their work. And again, as we know, there's a lot of pressure, especially time pressure with producing TV shows. So despite all that, it's just fascinating to hear how excited they both are. Yeah. I remember when we talked to Adam Stern from Continuum, the visual effects uh, coordinator for that show, and how a lot of times if you're doing your job right, the audience doesn't even notice that you've exactly. done it. <laughs> and that's kind of the the paradox of being a director of photography. <laughs> so we really appreciate uh, Sam McCurdy and Sarah Cauley taking the time to talk to us about cinematography and what it's all about. But next week, we're going back to our show topics, Dave. And you've got an interesting one for us that comes from what we've been enthusiastic about in the past, and that's the international content on Netflix. Yeah, it's a show that my wife and I, I don't want to say we stumbled upon it because we spent a lot of time looking at the possibilities on Netflix, but it's a Turkish Netflix series called The Gift, and it did not turn out to be exactly what I thought, which really turned out to be a windfall. So uh, we'll talk <laughs> about that next time. All right. I'm looking forward to talking about that. We'll have a couple episodes in the discussion, plus a, a little spoiler zone for you as well, if you plan on watching the whole thing. But uh, definitely check this out with us if it's been off your radar, because it's a hidden gem, as there often are in that international corner of Netflix. So that's going to be next week on the podcast. But that's it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. And be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or in an email, which can go to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.